The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. You have not saved us into your kingdom and then left us to figure out how to live our lives. We are so thankful, Father, that we have specific instructions given to us directly from Christ himself that we might know what it means to follow him. We praise you, Father, for the salvation that comes by grace through faith alone and not our works. And we praise you for the Holy Spirit that dwells in us that we might do your works. I ask, Father, for your grace to be upon Christ Community Church and that we might be truly blessed these next several weeks to hear from your word how we professors of Christ, followers of Christ, are to live for Christ. I ask that you would dispel, Father, any type of religion or routine or Western version of discipleship that's made its way into our our theology. I pray, Lord, that if we have embraced anything that is contrary to your word, that we would joyfully reject it and turn instead to to the sacred writings for our belief and for our practice. I pray that you would do that, Father, that we might be the most effective witnesses here in this place, that we might bring you the most glory and honor, that we might truly please you as our Heavenly Father. We want to be obedient children because of the love that you've given us in Christ. And so I pray that you would do this great work by your Spirit. Our flesh is unable. Our flesh works to the contrary. And so I pray that you would mortify our fleshly desires and by the power of your spirit that you would cause Christ Community Church to be a church that obeys you in love. We ask that you would do this, Father, for your great glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of context for it, but since these... these um, these teachings will not come from one particular book. I'm going to have to do a little bit of building. I won't do a lot because we were actually, well, we were in Matthew 5 a few years ago now, weren't we? That was just a little bit ago, maybe more than a minute or two. Um, the title of the sermon is, Yes, Jesus Expects Obedience. Yes, Jesus Expects Obedience. And for the past few weeks, we've been trying to, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we've been trying to discern um, who Jesus is, looking at him in such a way that our hearts are rightly kindled to, to want to love him and serve him and follow him. And so we're going to, we're going to work through another mini-series over the next seven weeks, eight weeks, nine weeks. I'm not sure yet. The scriptures will determine that. I'll let the, I'll let the word of God determine that. But this time, instead of asking the question, who is Jesus? I want to ask the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? In light of our, our heightened understanding of who he is, I want to ask, how do those who are true followers of Jesus Christ live? What should our lives look like? Do the scriptures teach to that? And if so, are we living in accordance with it? I'm not talking about a simple profession of faith and a a Sunday Sunday attendance at church, and that is the consummation of your, your Christian walk. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who live in accordance with Jesus' teaching. Those who are not merely hearers of the word, but what? but doers of the word. 
Or as Jesus said to the believing Jews in John chapter 8, if you hold to my teachings, then you really are my disciples. If you hold to my teachings, then you really are my disciples. Now we're doing this series because it has become apparent for many in the Western Evangelical Church, of which we are a part, that how we follow Jesus and how we participate in the life of the church is dramatically different than the New Testament, much of church history, and in many evangelical churches in different parts of the world today. That the Western church looks different. There's an old Chinese proverb that goes, if you want to define water, you don't ask a fish. I would argue that if you want to define what it means to follow Jesus Christ, you don't want to necessarily ask the Western church. There are other places that you might want to inquire that are serious about the Word of God and following Christ. When it comes to simple obedience to the simple commands of Christ, many of us, whether we know it or not, have been trained to conform not to the Word of God, but to the Western form of Christianity. How the church in the West practices Christianity But my beloved, you know the Bible teaches very clearly how we are supposed to live if we claim Christ. The Bible is not unclear. So if we live in willful disobedience to Jesus, obeying some of his teachings, but willfully and knowing, listen, not obeying others, he has, Jesus Christ has every right to call us into question. He has that authority of his people. Now, I want to be really clear. I'm not talking about the process of sanctification. I'm not not talking about where you strive to obey, you fall short, you repent, and you strive again. I'm talking about a week after week, year after year, continuation of a form of Christianity that is alien to Christ and alien to the New Testament. So we'll be asking the question that Jesus asked the multitudes in Luke chapter 6. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's going to be the, if you want one question that will that will give boundaries for the entire series. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Jesus said, and not do what I tell you to do? I believe this is a vital question for the Western church. I believe this is a vital question for our church. Now before we begin looking at the specific expectations, the six expectations that you have on the back of your your note sheet, um, I'd like, this morning, I'd like to go to Matthew chapter five. I I wanna hear from Jesus' own mouth From Matthew chapter 5, I want Jesus to tell us his expectations of righteousness for his people. What does Jesus say about those who call themselves his followers? What does he say about entering the kingdom? And I'd like to do that by looking at Matthew 5 with this proposition in mind. Listen, it's in your your bullet if you want to look. Here's Here's your theme or your thesis. Jesus fulfilled the law in his life, death, and resurrection so we can fulfill the law in our day-to-day lives. Jesus fulfilled the law in his life, death, and resurrection, so we could fulfill the law in our day-to-day lives, so we could be obedient followers of him. From this passage, I want to look at two points. Number one, as fulfiller of the law, Jesus has authority over the law. As the one who fills it, he claims authority over it. And number two, as fulfiller of the law, Jesus empowers us to fulfill the law too. He empowers you. He enables you to do what he calls you to do. You ready? (laughs) You're just just waiting on the edge of your seat with anxious anticipation, aren't you? 
I, I hope so. Point number one, as fulfiller of the law, Jesus has authority over the law. So <clears throat> Matthew chapter five, we're early in the Galilean ministry. Jesus is, is teaching, he's beginning to teach to this kingdom that he has brought from heaven down to earth that he's inaugurated. And so there's a multitude of people, Jews and Gentiles that have gathered on the, on the Chorazim Plateau and they're listening to Jesus teach. And he's teaching on this new kingdom. He's the king, he's come to earth, he's inaugurated this new kingdom. And so he's teaching, he's saying, listen, you wanna know what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom, I'm gonna tell you. And so he does, he, he gives a summary of kingdom life in the Beatitudes, which most of you know, and if you were here some years ago, you heard us teach through. He then calls him and said, I need you to be the salt and the light in this very dark place. And then Jesus makes this truly earth-shattering statement, especially for the Jews who were listening to them. Look at verse 17 in Matthew 5. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now Jesus will be accused through his entire ministry of changing the law, of perverting the law, of actually coming up with a law of his own, and his own sect of Judaism. But he dismisses early on this lie and he takes the law of God and he, he tells the people how precious it is and how good it is and how it is truly permanent, that it's not going to go away. Right down to the, the smallest Hebrew letter, an iota is really, it's a yod, it's the 10th letter in the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, it was so small that the scribes sometimes would, would miss it. They wouldn't see it. Not a single letter and not a single dot, not an apostrophe will be taken away from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, Jesus says, listen, I have a high view of scripture. I have a high view of the word of God. And he says, and I have come not to do away with it, not to abolish it, I've come to actually fulfill it. Now this claim Jesus is making to fulfill their sacred law and prophets, it would have been a really hard pill for the Jews to swallow. Hard in that they did not expect one man, any man, to come and fulfill the sacred scriptures. That They did not believe that the entire Old Testament pointed to a person that was going to come and do something specific. And certainly not a no-name carpenter from Nazareth. They did not expect such a, a declaration. And yet this is exactly what Jesus is teaching. This is what he's saying. Jesus is claiming that the entire Old Testament, the purpose and the ultimate meaning of the Old Testament points directly to him. He's claiming to be the one, the one that the sacred scriptures have been talking about for centuries. And he says, and I've come to fulfill it because I can fulfill it. In other words, the dozens of prophecies, specific prophecies about Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the, the hope of the ministry of the cross that will bring the gospel to the nations, Jesus is saying, they all find their fulfillment in me. The centuries of sacrifice, in, first in the tabernacle and now in the temple, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am the ultimate sacrifice. They all point, the entire system in the Old Testament, he says, they all point to me. Every single major theme in the Old Testament, every one, home and exile, rest and Sabbath, justice and judgment, Jesus says they find their fulfillment in me. Every major figure in the Old Testament, Adam, Abel, Abraham, Joseph, Joseph, Moses, and David, Ruth, Esther, Rahab, he said they all find their fulfillment 
in me. Every major image, prophet, priest, and king, Israel itself, the rock at Horeb, the bronze snake, the water of life, the bread of life, Jesus says, they all point to me, they all find their fulfillment in me. Every major story of deliverance that you read in the Old Testament, from the Exodus account to David and Goliath, Esther and Ruth, Jesus says, I am the deliverer, I am the savior, they all point to me. And that's why Jesus, as we saw last week on the road to Emmaus, when he said to the disciples, he said, listen, it's all about me. Listen to what he said. Jesus said, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus says, I'm the one to fulfill them. Oh, that's worth an amen, my brothers and sisters. So where does this leave us? Well, that word fulfill in the Greek, it literally means to, to make full. It's like a, like a sinkhole that's being filled with dirt or for in our technological age, I guess it'd be your hard drive being filled with gigabytes. Right? It's, it's us putting something in. And here it represents completion. It represents the completion of the long-awaited and much-anticipated promises and plans of God for God's people. Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill the promises. God sending his son to reconcile sinful man to himself and to make this fallen creation good again. It's what the Jews had been waiting for for centuries. A savior to come and make things right of this broken place. They waited for it. They anticipated it. They hoped for it. Now none of us are old enough to remember but back in the late 1800s the, the, the people of this area they were, they were anticipating and hoping for an opportunity to be able to get into Marin County without taking a boat. Um, the connection between San Francisco and the Northern Peninsula. It's about 1.2 miles. If you've been across the Golden Gate Bridge and you've looked, that'd be a horrible swim. 1.2 miles needed to span the distance between San Francisco County and Marin County, but it was beyond the technology at the time. They talked about it, they wanted to do it, but they could not do it. But as suspension bridges improved in their technology and monies became available, local government started gathering the funds in order to build what we know to be the Golden Gate Bridge. They started the building in 1937, and after four years and 35 billion, 35 billion, 35 million dollars in 1930s money, and nine fatalities later, the longest suspension bridge in the world at that time was complete. And the dreams and plans of connecting these two land masses was fulfilled. It has enabled, the Golden Gate Bridge has enabled 2.5 billion cars to pass back and forth from Marin County to San Francisco County. They fulfilled that particular dream. Here, Jesus is saying that he, he is fulfilling, that he's carrying out through his life, death, and resurrection the entire purpose of the law and prophets. That is the reunification of God and his people. This is the great promise of the entire Old Testament that God would send a savior to suffer, to die, and to rise from the dead so that what? So that sinners like us through repentance and faith could be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life with God. In other words, Jesus came to span that infinite gulf of sin and death that separates God from man. That great promise of the Old Testament that God would, through his son, build a spiritual bridge, a means for us to get from here to there sinners 
saved by grace, crossing that gulf so that we can come back into the presence of our creator safely, not being judged, but being redeemed and brought in as sons and daughters. And as the one who fulfills the promise, the ultimate promise of the Old Testament, bringing the gospel to life, Jesus does two things. One, he claims authority over the word of God. He said, I have authority over it. And number two, in his authority, he solidifies God's word as the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Now, most of you remember last year, Elon Musk, he, he bought Twitter. And when he, as soon as he bought Twitter, he made some radical changes in the company. So much so that he even changed the name from Twitter to X. Now, that's creative, I guess. X. He was able to do that because he had the authority to do that. He owned the company. When Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, fulfilled the law and prophets, he claims authority over the word of God because he has authority over the word of God. And in his authority, he said what? Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus said, I have authority over it, and I'm raising it up. This is the means by which you believe. This is the means by which you practice your faith. In fact, we just had a chance a few weeks ago to look at Keech's catechism number, question and answer number four, which is this manual of life, the Bible as a manual of life. Here's the question if you don't remember. What is the word of God? The answer, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament being given by divine inspiration are the word of God, listen with all your might, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. The only infallible rule of our faith, what we are to believe And the only infallible rule of our practice, how we are to live as Christians, is in God's word. Oh, and what an incredible blessing that is. Because we have God's word. It's not like we've lost the manual and we're trying to figure out what what are we supposed to believe and how are we supposed to live. We have the word of God. And that means, my beloved, the same word of God that the New Testament church used to determine what they believe and how they live is what we have today. And therefore, if we live in a manner that's contrary to God's word, if we obey some things and not others, we are minimally in error. And I would argue from this passage, we are possibly in great danger. We're minimally in error, but we might be in great danger. So the first thing we see from our text, I pray, is that Jesus, as the one who fulfills the law and the prophets, has authority to establish his Word, the Word of God, as the infallible rule for faith and practice, what we believe and how we live. And if Jesus has authority over it, and he's clearly taught in his Word how we're supposed to live, then the question that we want to ask is, are we living in accordance with the Word? The question we really want to ask, if we claim to be Christians, those who follow Jesus Christ, we want to ask is, how much do our lives as Christians, align with God's word. Christ has authority over it. Are we living in accordance with it? We might rephrase it a little bit. We might want to ask, how much do we have to obey to be obedient? And what does it mean to be an obedient follower? Do I have to obey 25%, 50%, 75%, or 100%? What does that look like? Point number two, I pray you're still with me. As fulfiller of the law, Jesus not only has authority over the law, as fulfill the law, Jesus empowers us to fulfill the law. So even though, even though Christ was not abolishing the law and the prophets, that was, that was a, a phrase for the entire Old Testament. Even though he wasn't abolishing it, 
His teaching sounded so radical to the Jewish ear, it sounded like he was abolishing it. The kingdom teachings, which were true teachings, according to the Old Testament, were so radical that they thought this must be new. You see, by the time that Christ arrived on scene, the teachings of Moses and the prophets and wisdom literature and, and the, narr- the narratives of the Old Testament, they had been so perverted by the religious leaders, by the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, that indeed, when Jesus was teaching the, these kingdom of heaven um, um, uh, laws, it sounded new to them. The Pharisees, we know, they had developed a system, 613 man-made laws, 365 positive, 248 negative, I'm sorry, 365 negative commands and 248 positive commands and they submitted to that over the law of God itself. Now that's 613. I mean, how could you even know how many, I mean, how would you be able to say, oh, here, that, oh that, was, that was law 438 that I broke. Jesus simplified it. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus simplified the entire Old Testament into two commandments. You know this. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, quoting what? Deuteronomy 6, 5. And then he said, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19, 18. And then he said, on these two commandments, a love for God and a love for neighbor, depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus takes the entire Old Testament and he hangs it on a love for God and a love for fellow man. Oh, that's much better than 613 man-made laws. I'm so thankful that's what we're called to submit to. In other words, Jesus Jesus was not teaching anything new. He was reclaiming what the Old Testament had always said. He was reclaiming it. The, The scribes and the Pharisees had perverted God's word. They had made their own laws. And so in in these kingdom of heaven teachings that we see on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches for the rest of his ministry. They all find their origin in the Old Testament. They all find their origin in the law and the prophets that Jesus has now fulfilled. And what Jesus does, he takes them out of the Old Testament and he grounds them straight in the love of God. He says, I'm I'm, I'm gonna make these, I'm gonna repackage these now as they were originally intended to be grounded in the love of God. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus claims authority over the word and, and then unapologetically, my beloved, he's teaching how we're to live in this kingdom. Unapologetically, he says, if you're going to follow me, this is how you're going to live. If you're going to claim Christ, he said, this is, this is how you're going to live. You're going to hear, you're going to understand, and you're going to obey my commands. And he's able to say that because, because he grounds everything in a love for God, God's love for us, and a love, a reciprocating love for him. He can say that to true followers of Christ because our hearts have what? Our hearts have been captured by God's love. Right? He can say that you are to obey these things because you will want to obey these things. A love that was clearly revealed through the cross when Christ gave his life to redeem sinners like us. Not only to redeem us, to forgive us and redeem us, but to send his spirit that we might have power, real power, my beloved, to hear and obey. This is why Jesus is able to teach these, what we would consider radical teachings. Even the Pharisees and the scribes considered them radical teachings, radical obedience. Look at verse 19. Jesus said, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So these commandments Jesus is talking about, I don't think it's the old covenant, old uh, testament law specific. It's the old testament law now being brought into the new covenant. So these kingdom teachings, these kingdom of heaven teachings are, are the repackaged law in the context of the gospel. And so Jesus, he, he teaches to the heaven in the Beatitudes He'll, for uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. He will continue to teach what it means to, to be a follower of his, to live as a kingdom citizen, and then for the rest of the ministry. And he brings all this to the forefront in light of the message of the gospel itself. That's why in the, in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you hear Jesus say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, right? I say unto you. Um, verse 21, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. So he's citing, quoting the sixth commandment. Then he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he takes the truth of the Old Testament and he brings it in the context of the gospel. He, he heightens it. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder, citing the seventh commandment. But I say to you, Jesus, now authority of the law, right? I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Radical statements. Radical obedience that Jesus expects of all those who follow him. He calls us to obey because we are able to obey. And if we don't, he says there are consequences. Look at, look at the latter part of verse 19 again. Or the, the first part, I'm sorry. Whoever relaxes, that word relax means to loosen. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, we'd be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So you, you say, you know what, I'm, I'll do these and I won't do these. Or, or worse yet, you teach others to diminish the teachings of Christ as he's revealed here and in the New Testament. Um, you'll be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. The converse being equally true. Latter part of verse 19, whoever does them, notice that he doesn't say whoever believes them. <laughs> whoever does them, whoever hears and actually does what I'm saying, whoever does them and teaches, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Right? So loving obedience to the commands of Christ is pleasing to our heavenly Father. God loves it when we obey and teach others to obey out of a gospel-saturated love. And he says, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There'll be favor for you. Now, before we go any further, I, I just want to pause for a minute to make sure that when we're talking about the law, we're talking about in the context of the gospel, right? Because you, you can get squirrely on this teaching really, really fast. So let me just spend a, a, few, a few, a minute or two. Okay, I won't go long, I promise. Jesus taught clearly in the word that holy living obedience to the law of God is required of his followers. That's not ambiguous. Read through the New Testament one time and you will hear obedience, obedience, obedience. In fact, we saw it, did we not? Revelation chapter 20, the day of judgment. I'll read it to you. Day of judgment. John is seeing this. He said, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Remember, those are the books that chronicled every word and every thought and every action of every person in all of human history. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done according to their works. So we talked about that final adjudication being contingent upon our works. But Jesus also knows that we cannot keep the law of God by simply trying to keep the law of God. 
right? Our nature is to rebel against God. Our nature hates the law of God. So he knows in order for us to be successful law keepers, to be obedient to his teachings, in order to enter the kingdom, that we must become the kind of people where the deeds of the law and the work of the law come from the inside, right? We need to be changed as a people so that we want to know and we want to obey. You see, one of the grand purposes of the the radical gospel of grace and love that God pours out to us in Christ is not just that we've been delivered from our sins and we've been brought into the kingdom of God and we've been blessed with the, the righteousness of Christ. It is real power that you have in the spirit if you know Christ to obey Christ. Real power, my beloved, to stop breaking the law and start obeying the law. Being transformed, as we know, by the Spirit from the inside out. See, before you're born again, you don't want to know God, you don't want to follow God, and you don't want to obey the law. But then you're born again, and you're given a new heart, and now you have new desires. And these are weird desires. At least they are to you compared to how you used to live. Because now... Now you want to follow Christ. Now you want to know what the word says. Now you want to obey out of your love for God and his great love for you. I mean, that's the great promise that God made to the prophet Ezekiel, is it not? The promise that was fulfilled at Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Listen, Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart. That's you if you're in Christ. A new spirit I will put within you. That's the Holy Spirit of God. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will, listen to this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to what? To obey my rules. That's the great promise made to Ezekiel, fulfilled at Pentecost, that is given to you if you are in Christ. I'll read that last line again. I will put my spirit within you and cause you So this is the work of God to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I didn't think that was part of Christianity. I thought it was salvation by grace through faith alone and works do not matter. Well, that's not what the New Testament says. That's not what the word of God says, which Christ has authority over. So look at verse 19 again with me. Whoever relaxes, loosens one of these, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. My beloved, this makes sense. If you have power now in Christ to obey the laws of Christ, but you decide willfully and knowingly to disobey them, or worse yet, you teach and encourage others to disobey them, then we should expect to be disciplined. We should expect to be the least in the kingdom if we're in the kingdom at all. Jesus is able to say this because He's given power to us in the spirit to do what he's called us to do. I mean, think about the Great Commission, right? The the Great Commission for the church to go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them what? Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Now, certainly Christ would not call us to teach people to obey him if we cannot obey him. It would be a, I think, a cruel teaching, actually, if he were to do that. If I, were to, if I were to say to my four-year-old granddaughter, uh, you know what, we, we were gonna have hamburgers tonight for dinner, we don't have any hamburgers, I want you to get in the car, I want you to drive across the street, and I want you to buy hamburgers for dinner. She'd probably look at me like, are you serious, Papa? There, I, I, I can't drive, and I don't have money, and I couldn't find the hamburgers if I wanted to. 
right? That would be an unreasonable expectation for her to obey what I asked her to do. But if I said that to one of my sons, I said, listen, you know, we were going to have hamburgers. We have no hamburgers. Get in the car, go to the store, buy the hamburgers so we can eat. They could obey or disobey. If they obeyed, hopefully they, hopefully they would. They, they'd want to do that because I'm their father and they'd want to hopefully please me. But if they disobeyed, they disobey it with the power to obey it. It'd be willful disobedience in light of the fact that they could. Right? So it's the same for us in Christ. We have the power in Christ to obey what Christ calls us to do. Now let's fast forward from the Sermon on the Mount to the Western Evangelical Church today. I believe that there's reason, and, and I'll develop this over the next several weeks, for the evangelical church in the West. I'm talking about healthy churches now. To be concerned in light of what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5. In, in his sermon on the mount, Jesus lays out what it looks like to live out this kingdom life. What it looks like to follow Christ, your faith in practice. Um, and even the scribes and Pharisees hearing this, they thought this is impossible. This man is establishing a standard that's not possible. And that is a true statement in that it's not possible for you in the flesh to obey God. But it is possible in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore we can say, Jesus expects his children to obey him. God expects Christians to obey the word. This high standard is revealed throughout the entire sermon. The whole sermon is binary. It's black and white. It reveals those who are obeying in Christ and those who will disobey. A person's either what? They're either going through the narrow gate or the wide gate. They're either on the hard path or the easy path. They're either on the way of life or the way of death. They're either bearing much fruit or they're bearing bad fruit. They're either building their house on the rock or on the sand. The entire sermon is binary. You're either in Christ, obeying Christ, following Christ, or you're not. So what does that mean for Christians in the Western church today? What does it mean for Christ's community church? The expectation for a professing Christian to be a member of a healthy gospel-centered church like Christ's community church, I would say is pretty meager today Make a profession of faith. Get baptized. If you're a church that has covenant membership, go through a membership class. Say yes, amen to the covenant. And you come in. What is required to stay in the church? What is required to take communion every Sunday of the church? The Western Evangelical Church. Don't forsake the gatherings on a regular basis. Make sure you're here. And make sure you're not engaged in any willful, grievous, unrepentant sin like adultery or, or stealing. And then you can take communion. Now functionally, my beloved, that, that's pretty much it. We can say otherwise. You might say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have a church covenant. I went through it with you. You taught it to me. Yes, amen, we do. But the question is not do we have a church covenant. The question is do we live in accordance with the church covenant. Go back tonight and reread the church covenant and ask yourself, am I living in accordance with it? If you are, if we all are, I'll stop the sermon series and we'll grab another book. I don't think we are. I would argue most churches that have covenant membership have great covenants just like ours in paper and not in function. 
We say yes, this is what we believe. We say yes, this is how we're going to live as a church community, and then we do otherwise. When we think about holding one another accountable to the church covenant for something more than, oh, I haven't seen you in a month and I heard you were sleeping around on your wife. If we don't have an accountability structure, an encouragement structure for that, then it becomes easy to lapse into something, a form of religion that is not in accordance with the word of God. I think it goes without saying that this way of Christian living in the West is less than significantly less than what Jesus taught. I think if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, and I, I pray we will be over these next several weeks, we'll be honest with ourselves. You'll be honest with yourself, and we'll be honest about our church. I think we could agree that at least the church in the West has greatly relaxed. We have loosened many of the fundamental teachings of our Lord. Not just the least but I would argue many of the most important teachings of our Lord we have relaxed. In most of what we would consider healthy churches in the West today, you can be a member in good standing and you can take communion as long as you show up regularly and no one knows about any grievous sin in your life. And that's it. Practically, that's it. Without any real expectation by the elders or a church body, for you to what? Let's use your gifts and talents for the edification of the body, which is repeated multiple times in the New Testament, commanded to. You can be a member in good standing in the Western church with no expectation, no real practical expectation of you loving one another. Practical, sacrificial, real love. You can be a member in good standing in the Western church with no expectation by the elders or the church body to be serious about praying together, to be serious about sharing the gospel, to be serious about making disciples, to bear what? To bear much fruit. And so prove that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. You can be a member in good standing in the Western church and have no mercy for those who are hurting in our culture. As long as you show up, Consistently on Sunday, in some churches, that's 45 minutes. 45 minutes, and don't let us know you're in willful and repentant sin, and then come to the table. My beloved, this, I'm grieved over this. I really am. I've called into question for the past few months now the degree to which I have led faithfully here at Christ Community Church in light of what Jesus says. Right, I'm an under-shepherd. Christ is the great shepherd. We want to listen to him. In the Western church, you can go your entire life like this. Going to church gatherings on Sunday, a little prayer here, a Bible study there, with little to no obedience to Jesus' other commands. I would say weightier commands. Oh, I'm, I'm, I am thankful you're here on Sunday. I am. I, I believe that you're not supposed to forsake Hebrews 10.25, the gathering of the assembly of the saints. This is, this is important for us. But it's not more important than you sharing the gospel with those who are lost. It's not more important than you using your gifts to grow this church. It's not more important than you showing mercy and justice for the oppressed, for the widows, and for the orphans. It's not. And yet somehow in the Western church, this has become the consummate 
definition of what it means to be a Christian. Show up in church. Don't engage in willful and repentant sin. That's hard in light of the New Testament. And the worst part is you can do this your whole life and no one will say a word to you. No one. Not pastors, not brothers and sisters. When the boys were younger, I, I, I coached high school football. And on Monday afternoons, before we go out to practice, we would gather and we'd spend an hour looking at film and talking about the previous week's game. If there was a young man who came into that meeting every single Monday from 2.30 to 3.30, and he sat and he listened and he watched the film, but he never came to practice, he never suited up for a game, he never played in a game, if he did nothing, even as a non-player, to support the team, we would not have considered him part of the team. Now, he may tell all his friends and family, I'm on the football team. He may even wear a jersey to school and deceive his friends. He says, look for me when I'm out on the field. He may bring forth this deception. But the truth of the matter would be that he was not part of the team. My beloved, how many Christians are gathered on this Lord's Day in churches just like this and following Christ just like this young man who was not on the team. Every Sunday, getting out of bed, getting dressed, sitting with other believers for 45 minutes an hour, and that is the extent of their faith. And no one from the team, not the coaches and not the players, telling them, we love you, but you're not on the team. Even though, according to Jesus, this type of spiritual deception has deadly consequences. Look at verse 20. Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will, listen, with all your might, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not only does Jesus expect you to be righteous, he expects your righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now that would have been an extraordinary statement at the time because these were the guys. This was the Jewish all-star team. All first stringers. Scribes and Pharisees fully expected to enter and all those who saw them expected them to enter the kingdom of God. Full access. And yet Jesus says to this Jewish all-star team, your righteousness is woefully inadequate. Jesus, to the most notable religious leaders of his time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those in the Sanhedrin, you know what he does? He cuts them all. He cuts every single one. He says, you're not on my team, you're not on my team, you're not on my team. And then he begins to build a team of his own based on a completely different standard of what it means to be righteous. You say, well, why did he cut them? You know why he cut them. They were all trying to get in, to be on the team and to get into heaven based upon their own works. But we know, my beloved, the problem is not our external works. The problem is the human heart. And so the solution to the problem of righteousness is not being better, it's not doing good, it's having your heart transformed and from that transformed heart, living a holy life. So for the rest of his sermon, Jesus, he makes this contrast between the pseudo-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and true righteousness that comes from a heart that's born again by the love of God. Jesus is directing his listeners 
And he's directing us to a kingdom way of life that goes way beyond simple, wooden obedience to the law of God. He's not diminishing it. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not abolishing the law. The law is there. You have to obey it. But I need you to, I want you to obey it for different reasons. Not to get into heaven because you're already in through grace. Not to be loved by God, but because you are already loved by God through me. Christ says, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So we're supposed to obey. It'd be a weird righteousness not to obey. We're supposed to obey. God intends for us to obey, but it's supposed to be from the inside out. This, my beloved, is the righteousness that far exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Not disobedience, but obedience from a captured heart, from someone who's been truly born again. And obedience, a radical obedience, we can say, from the heart practiced out of a deep love for God and a desire to please him. That's the necessary righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's the righteousness that I want for you and for myself and for our entire church. You see, the the scribes, they spent their whole lives scribbling. (laughs) Scribe, scribble, writing down copies of the Old Testament. And they thought in so doing that they had earned their way into heaven. Jesus had a shocking statement for them. John chapter 5. He said to the scribes, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Pharisee, that word Pharisee, it means separatist. Those who are set apart. As I told you, they already created their own host of laws and and they put those laws above the law of God, man-made laws. Both the Pharisees and the scribes were attempting to enter the kingdom of God by their own power. Obeying man-made laws, obeying God's laws on their own terms, by their own power. And in the eyes of the people, these, were, these truly were the all-stars. But in the eyes of God, they had fallen woefully short. So how does your righteousness surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees? I mean, I don't know about you. I don't want to be cut. I don't want to be cut from Jesus' team. I I want to make it all the way in. And if I'm going to make it all the way in, if I'm going to enter the kingdom, then my righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were pretty righteous guys. John chapter 6, Jesus said this to the crowd, listen. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? He said, oh, I want to know the answer to that. Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You want to know what the work of God is at its very foundation? It's to believe, put your faith, put your trust in Jesus Christ. You say, no, wait a minute. That's faith and not works. The very foundation of all the work that God calls you to do must be grounded in and founded in your faith in Jesus Christ. It must begin there or you'll be no different from the scribe and the Pharisee. The righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees is believing in Jesus. It's trusting in Jesus because that belief, God knows, it produces a transformed life. You truly trust in Christ, you follow Christ, you love Christ most and you will not not be able to, sorry for the double negative, not live a holy life. You'll have to because you'll be changed. You'll be different from the inside out and the out will look different because the inside's different. It's a transformative belief. It's a belief that 
that Christ did in fact fulfill the law and the prophets and therefore has authority to tell us how to live. It is a a belief that God is holy and just and will judge all those who refuse to what? To put their faith and trust in the Son. It is a belief that you are a sinner through and through, deserving of judgment and eternal damnation, but God has sent his Son as a Savior. It's believing that, really believing it. It's believing that through the cross, God grants forgiveness and imputes. He gives righteousness to all who what? To all who believe. It's a belief that God did in fact pour out his wrath on the Son and the Son willfully and joyfully took the wrath so that we could be spared. It's believing that. It's believing that through his death and his resurrection, Jesus imparts to us not just his righteousness and his glory, but his power in the Holy Spirit to be the obedient sons and daughters that God has called and equipped us to be. Believing in Jesus means that your ultimate desire will no longer be you. It won't be your glory, your career, your bank account, your marriage, whatever the idol is, it will be God's glory in Christ. Believing Jesus means that your ultimate desire will be to live as an expression of your love for God, heart, mind, soul, and strength, which manifests what? A love for one another. A love for your neighbor. Because all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, it will be your heart's desire to hear Jesus speak, to understand what Jesus is saying, and to obey Jesus. You'll want to. You'll you'll work for that. You'll work to know and obey by the power of the Spirit. You see, believing in the Savior experiencing the grace that God offers through the Son, it changes the heart of the sinner so that your desires, your desire is to please God, which leads to an obedient life. Radical internal transformation that leads to radical external transformation. This is the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven. If yours is anything less than that, you are in danger says Jesus. A righteousness, literally, that wants to do all that God has called us to do. Literally, your desire is to know and to obey every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This simple teaching, and it's basic, of our righteousness surpassing the scribes and the Pharisees, of our hearts being born again and us living radically obedient lives, it's been dismissed, my beloved, in the Western church for a few decades now. Dismissed. Instead, we say things like this, God's grace is sufficient, and that means obedience or disobedience, it does not matter. It doesn't matter, I'm saved by grace through faith. Don't talk to me about works, don't talk to me about obedience. We don't say that, explicitly from the pulpit, but that's what we imply in how we do church, is it not? That's what we imply in how we live our Christian lives. Or we say, you know what? This perfection is impossible. 
This standard's impossible. The scribes and the Pharisees thought that. And because it's impossible, I won't even try. Are you like that, my beloved? An impossible task given? You say, well, why try? My righteous deeds are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. Why try? So we don't even try. Or we try really hard, not in the power of the gospel that set us free, not in the power of the Holy Spirit that tells us we're already loved by God. We try in the flesh. We try really hard and we fail again and again and again. These are all perversions of the righteousness that Christ calls us to. A righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a righteousness that, that you know you're a sinner and you know you've been saved by grace. And that means it won't be a perfect life. You're going to sin, you're going to stumble, you're going to fall, you're going to seek forgiveness, you're going to turn from that, and God's going to forgive you, and he's going to heal you, and he's going to set you back on that path of righteousness, and that's going to happen again and again. This is not perfectionism. No such thing on this side. You'll get that when you see Christ face to face. But this is, my beloved, you, in the power of the Spirit, not giving up. Because Christ forgives us when we fail, we get back up and we continue to follow him. It is a faith in Jesus. It's a belief in Jesus that if we press on, he will enable us to press on. I love how Paul said in Philippians 3, listen, this is Paul now. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So the righteousness comes from God. And then Paul says, not that I, am already perfect, but I what? You know this. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. My beloved, this is a righteousness that's not satisfied with obedience in some areas and disobedience in others. That's not the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. It is a faithful pursuit in the power of the Spirit of every single command the scriptures give us. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and it's the woe section. Listen to this. Woe to you, you already heard it read once. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He said you should have obeyed the commands but not just the ones you wanted to. You should have obeyed them all. That's the righteousness that my father expects. I fear, my beloved, that many of us in the Western church have done the exact same thing. We've embraced some of the teachings of Christ. I mean, we, I think that, that healthy churches, they're pretty good at gathering together regularly. We're pretty good at getting into small groups and, and reading our Bibles and, and we, I, think, I think most really strive not to engage in willful, unrepentant sin. And that's good. That's the, that's the tithing of the mint and the dill and the cumin. But I would argue that, that we have neglected and are neglecting some of the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy. Justice and mercy for those who are being oppressed. Matters like real prayer. Real prayer, individually and as a church, we're going to look at prayer and we're going to see the New Testament church 
They did a lot of it. They knew why. Real evangelism to our neighbors who do not know Christ. Real disciple-making of those who have made professions of Christ. These are, these are weightier matters, my beloved. And yet, we often neglect them as though they're not that important. Using our gifts and talents to grow the church. Weightier matters. Friends, when you consider your faith in practice, here's your first introspective question, and then I'll close. Does it look like the faith and practice that Jesus reveals in the New Testament? Does your faith and practice match the Bible? Or are you that fish swimming in the water and cannot even define it? Have you been molded more by the Western church and Western Christianity than New Testament Christianity? A strict obedience to the teachings of Christ born out of an overflowing love for God in your heart. A strict obedience to the teachings of our Lord born out of an overflowing love for God in your heart because of what Christ did for you at Calvary. Do you think that you're good enough to enter into the kingdom? Maybe like the Pharisees and scribes still relying upon your own righteousness saying, you know what? I haven't missed church in five years. I read my Bible every morning. I give, not, not cumin and dill, but I give. Do you rely upon your own righteousness? Maybe even obeying your own commands that are not even in Scripture. If that is you, my beloved, I will call you today and for the next several weeks to repent immediately and put your faith in Christ. If you have foolishly embraced a, a, a form of cheap grace that produces no good work in your life or very little, so little it's hard to see, a partial obedience that relaxes the commandments of Christ, then I will call you today to repent and turn to God and put your faith in Christ. If your desire is anything less than to be holy as he is holy, if you think that grace without obedience or faith without works will save you, if you're okay willfully obeying some and willfully disobeying other teachings of Christ, then I pray this morning that you'll repent with me and that we will repent as a church and that we will turn to Christ and ask to be forgiven for our less than faithful, fruitless at times lives. The fulfiller of the law desires obedience. The fulfiller of the law has empowered us to obedience. And so the fulfiller of the law expects us to obey. Jesus will close his sermon with these words. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For the next few weeks, we will look at what it means to do the will of the Father. We'll look at what it means to follow Christ, what that life looks like according to the word of God. Ask God to humble you. Ask God to humble us. 
so we can put aside maybe some bad training and bad practice of Western Christianity and by grace be the true followers that Christ has called us to be, those who hold to his teachings and, as Jesus said, really are my disciples. Pray that we would be a body of believers that really does love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and in our love for him, live lives that prove we belong to Christ. You pray with me to that end right now? Father, a hard word from your son. A hard word for our church and the church here in the West. I'm thankful for it, Father. Even for all the conviction it brings upon me and my brothers and sisters, I'm thankful for it. We want to know that righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. We want to know it. We want, by the power of your Spirit, to live it out. I'm thankful, Father, that there's no other standard that you don't call us to anything less than a righteousness that displays the glory of your name and the power of your Son to make a people for himself. Father, be gracious with us as we look at several difficult passages over the next few weeks. Be gracious with us. Cause us to hear like we've never heard before. Cause us to be humble so that we might obey, maybe like we've never had before. And then use Christ Community Church. Use us, Father, to bring you the most glory and honor that we can. Do away with whatever form of Western Christianity we've embraced that's not well aligned with your scripture. Do away with it, Father, altogether. And bring us in line with your word. We thank you that Christ fulfilled the law. We thank you that he's given us the power and the spirit to obey the law. Do that for your glory, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.